0: All right, so so here's the deal. Here's the deal. This is the take that I got to get for the video and the audio online so I can't jack this service up. Be- well, so so this is what happens. This is what happens. Uh, Jeremiah comes up to me this morning. He goes, here's the mic and these brand-new batteries in it. And I'm like, okay, sweet, brand-new batteries. Well, we have these really... Crappy rechargeable batteries that we stick in different things that we really you know it's not it puts them in my mic and so the mic actually dies like right in the middle of last service and I am too lazy to walk over and go right so I just talk louder <laughs> kind of like how fights happen in my house I just talk louder right so I gotta get, this is the one I gotta get right and that just means I'm gonna I'm gonna jack it up the entire time what no. Gotta be like, ooh, ah, wow, hey man. Ooh. Jesus. Jesus. And all this doesn't actually go on the video, so no one gets to see this either. All the fun part like ah anyway. Um, two things before we start. Number one, uh we we had a lawnmower. You know sometimes I talk about things kind of just disappear around here, every once in a while just kinda walk off. We had a lawnmower. It wasn't the best lawnmower in the world. You don't write home about it. It's not going to win any awards, but you know, s- someone was like, here, here's a lawnmower and you can, you guys can use this. Put it in the bay out back. Disappeared, walked off. Okay? And I really don't think a homeless guy stole it. Cause you ever really see a homeless guy just walking down the street with a lawnmower like, right? So, so somebody borrowed it. If it was you, could you return it? If, if you are somebody who has, like, a lawnmower in your garage and you got, like, weeds and rocks because you never mow your lawn and you want to give your lawnmower, don't go buy one or anything, but if you have, like, a lawnmower you want to give away and you want to give it to us, we'd be willing to take your lawnmower. I can just imagine that one getting stolen too, right? And you got, like, two homeless guys. And that's all I can say because I don't want to get in trouble I'm not making fun of homeless guys. I'm just saying. Sometimes they do, like, to walk off with of stuff. Then, then they realize this is more work than I thought it was and then they leave it sitting right there on the corner, so... No, we got to go pick. Stop, like I said, right there. Okay, so uh, we have a Good Friday and Easter or just a few weeks away. Uh, Good Friday is the Friday before Easter, and we are doing two services. Normally, we do one Good Friday service. Uh, this year, it's going to be in this room, so we're going to do two, uh, and they are going to be PG-13, okay? Uh, I know a lot of churches, when they say, oh, it's going to be PG-13, they're like, shoot, right? When we say it's PG-13... It's PG-13. All right. So what we're going to do is the 7 o'clock one, we're going to have full child care. Okay, so uh, all the way up through elementary age, you know, bring them and, and they can go to, to class in the back because it's it's, it's going to, Good Friday is a time for me to help you to understand the depth and depravity of our sin and what Jesus saved us from. And so it is like, it is, it is meant to be offensive. And if you walk out of here a little offended, I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that. Because we need to realize our sense is an offense to a good and holy God. And we need to understand what it is and what it is like. And Good Friday is a day that, that I feel like I can just go for it, okay? And we're, and we're going to go for it. And so that, that's my warning to you uh, up front is we're going to have child care. So, again, PG-13. And so don't be like, I can't believe that they would say these things. God says a lot worse than we're going to say. I'm not going to quote everything he says in the Bible, but oh my goodness. You know, we're we're not going to go to the R version of what God says. We're just going to go to the PG-13 version of what God says. So, uh, two services, 7 and 8.30, 7S full child care. Um, services will be about probably an hour by the time that we're done with them. Um, also, and then uh, Easter, we're going to do a Saturday night service at 6 p.m., Uh, If you're going to come and help out, especially with kids or whatever, you can feel free to come to that one so you don't miss anything on Sunday. Uh, We do like to call that Saturday night service a little bit of our practice so we have a little more fun uh, with it, and I'll probably mess up a few things, but you know that's kind of what it's there for, and then we'll do the three normal ones on Sunday. Uh, Any questions about any of that? Don't ask me what we're going to do. It's going to be a surprise for Good Friday. And when I say this, I feel like it gives me license just to go like, just to step over that line, you know, just to and be like, oh my, I cannot believe. You will believe it when we are done. Okay. Uh, so if, if you are newer, newer to Element, there are Bibles in the back. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. Uh, there are sermon notes on all the communion tables throughout the room. Inside of that, uh, you will get notes and questions that go along with the message. On the back, there's some announcements. If you have a smartphone, you don't have to shut it off. Uh, what you can do is download an app. It's called UVersion. Click on live and you version. We will come up by GPS in your smartphone. You will get sermon notes and questions and verses and all that goes along with today's message. My name is Aaron. I am one of the pastors here, so why don't you stand with me for reading of God's Word? We will get started. This is Revelation chapter 3, verse 17. And it says, For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Let's pray. Father the smart, I ask that you would teach us uh, what it means that we are a people in need, that we are uh, in our sin, wretched and pitiable and poor, blind and naked, and that all of our lives need and must be surrendered to you and your goodness. I ask that you would teach us what it means to have a zeal for you, to live in redeemed lives that honor you in all things. Amen. So what we are doing is we are looking at the churches in the book of Revelation, chapter 2 and chapter 3. If you have a Bible, you can open to Revelation chapter 3. This is an attempt to get a better picture of Jesus and us. And so what Jesus does is he has John write these these letters to these churches. Uh, This is Jesus' words that John writes down and sends to the churches. We do this in what we are calling our Lent-like journey. Uh, a time of sober reflection to allow God to take His bright light, shine it deep into our hearts and our souls, so that He, you know, pulls out every hidden thing within us, so we can deal with those things. So by the time we get to the joy and the celebration of Easter and resurrection, we can have a proper, loud, amazing, raucous celebration because Jesus has risen from the grave. You guys are not making this recording go any better right now. I'm just. Throwing that out there. Throwing it out there. Uh, so what we hit today is is the last church in the book of Revelation that Jesus writes a letter to. And these are probably the hardest words that he says. And you got to understand, the book of Revelation is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's the revelation of Jesus. There are so many people who want to teach the book of Revelation from like a hocus-pocus kind of view that you lose the point of the book. The point of the book is Jesus, the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's the name of the book. The revelation is not the revelation of the number of the beast or the revelation of the second death or the revelation of angel and demon battles or the revelation of the raptures. The point is not about how to leave this place called earth and watch it burn. It is all about worshiping Jesus, who he has revealed himself to be, Here and now, and then into eternity. And again, today is the last church that Jesus writes a letter to in Revelation chapter 3. This is the last church in Asia Minor. So here's the map again. It's on the bottom right, so we made the entire circuit all the way around all these churches. Revelation chapter 3, verse 14. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write... So, what's the deal with Laodicea? Who is this church and who are these people? It's a really interesting story that goes along with everything that Jesus says here. Uh, This city is like a lot of cities that Jesus writes a letter to. They are important and they are wealthy. The city's importance grew from its wealth because you had all these conversions of all these major trade routes which ran through their area. Uh, All the communication for the area ran through Laodicea. And so as that grew, so did the city as well. Laodicea is considered a hill city. It's not a full acropolis, but it's a, a hill city. It sits on a high portion. Here's a picture of it, the, the ruins of it today. That's, that's what it looks like. Uh, because it sits on a high place, it's easily defensible. It's easily seen. Because of the location of Laodicea, it's a strategic command center for the region at the time. The city also had two amphitheaters. Uh, one sat a few thousand and one sat over 10,000. Here's a picture of the one that seats over 10,000. Now, uh, in, in this day and age, usually a large major city would have one amphitheater, just one. It showed that you had a lot of luxury if you had an amphitheater. They had two. So it shows you how important and how much money they had in this city because of how everybody kind of traveled through there. And all that wealth and all that luxury actually translated to the Christians as well. They got to enjoy that wealth as well. So we're going to walk through this bit by bit, and then we'll talk about it, bring historically this together for us, and then hopefully what Jesus calls in us. That's kind of my my plan. So Revelation 3, 14 to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. So Jesus does what he does to all the churches is he starts by saying, this is who I am. Don't forget who I am. So he calls himself the amen. The word amen is a word that has its roots in the ideas that you stand firm, that you are trustworthy, that you are secure. It's so like when we say amen, it means like so be it, that's true, that's, that's this thing. It's a title that identifies him as the God of truth. So when he next says the faithful and true witness, it's a description of amen for that Greek audience that, that's getting this letter. Uh, He is the beginning of God's creation, means he is the ruler of God's creation. In Laodicea, they would go and they would build these temples to various gods in important places, and they believed all these different gods somehow controlled the nature, parts of nature around them. Jesus announces, I'm the beginning of creation, I'm the one who set it in motion, I'm the one that's in charge of it, not all your stupid little temples and gods you got over there. It's It's all about me. And what that tells you is Laodicea had started to take and, and mix their worship of Jesus with the worship of all of these other gods. And he calls them out. You need to stop doing that. And he calls them out of that. Verse 15. He says, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. That's the word spew or vomit you out of my mouth. To the north of Laodicea is a place called Heropolis. And Heropolis is a city that's built upon a thermal hot spring. Here's a picture. This thermal hot spring, it's famous for its medicinal qualities because of all the minerals in this water. The water that comes out of this is boiling hot to the south of the city of Laodicea is the city of Colossae, which is where we got the book of Colossians in the scriptures from. It's named after that city. And next to the city, there is a stream that flows, and the waters that flow out of this stream, here's a picture, are extremely cold, but they're very refreshing and they're very pure. It's good Water. Laodicea sits between two cities who have very good water. The water source in Laodicea, it is terrible. It is lukewarm. It is reddish in color. And if you try to drink it, you will throw it up because your body will say, you're not putting that in here. And right back out, it comes. It induces vomiting. And so what Laodicea did is they tried to build an aqueduct from these two cities to get the hot water and the cold water to them. But By the time it got to them, it was, again, lukewarm. It was lukewarm. And so what Jesus does, he takes this picture of this lukewarmness to say, this is what you're like. And I'm on the verge of spewing you out of my mouth. It appears that this church made Jesus sick when he thought about it. And a lot of people take this verse out of context today. They say, be hot for Jesus or be cold for Jesus. Just don't be in the middle and lukewarm for Jesus. And we have this idea that, that cold is bad and, and, and hot is good. And that's not what it's saying at all. It says Jesus wants us productive, living on a mission for him. Be hot and have a passion. Be cold like a glass of water on a really hot day like this room this morning. would be really nice. Like I just glass of water, right, colder. It feels feel so good, wouldn't it? This is the thing. We were talking about, uh, Manette says to me this week, she says, do you want me to grab popsicles for everybody because it's supposed to be hot on Sunday? And I said, no, what I'd really like to give everybody is a glass of tepid Santa Maria tap water. (laughs) Because it'll go along with the message. So I am the bad guy that didn't give you guys popsicles today because I wanted it to, I didn't want you to be like, oh, yay, a popsicle. Lukewarm. (laughs) Not happening today, right? So I, I want you guys with the tepidness and to sit in the middle of it. What Jesus says is, I want you to be good things. This is one of the harshest criticisms to any of the churches. He says, I know your deeds, and I know in a lot of Christian churches today the word deeds is like a swear word. You just don't say it. It's like ever since we get to Martin Luther and the Reformation, we salvation salvation is by faith alone, which it is, which it is. We seem to think that all works are bad. Jesus clearly, clearly does see our deeds. Our salvation is a free gift. It is. But our Christian life is going to be demonstrated by what we do and how we live it out. Jesus condemns the church of Laodicea for deeds that are not hot or cold. Really, they just did nothing special. Verse 17. For you say I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Those are like fighting words. Okay, I mean this is like in in your face. You just don't go up and say this to anybody. Uh, There's an earthquake in this area in AD 60. Laodicea is the only city who did not ask the Roman government to for money to help rebuild. They said, you know what? We're a banking center, financial center. They're like the Wall Street of Asia Minor. And they said, we don't need anybody's help. They literally said, I need nothing. The words that Jesus just used. Laodicea is also famous for its black wool from its black sheep. And so this black wool was rarer and more expensive than white wool. They also had a school of medicine established, and they made compound medicines for complex diseases. Supposedly, they even had this thing called Phrygian powder that you'd put on your eyes, and it would cure you of different eye diseases. I hear Phrygian powder, I think of like Princess Bride and like the Iocane powder, as you wish. It just kind of makes me think of that. Uh, The largest city in the region used to be Colossae, but as all of the you know industry and all the technology started to build in Laodicea, it quickly just outgrew Colossae, and it became the largest and greatest city in that region. Uh, They in Laodicea felt that they were invincible, that they were important, that nothing could take them down. Kind of sounds like the country we live in today. Uh, In the spiritual realm, though, God looks at them, and he sees them very differently. He sees them as wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. That is not how anybody in Laodicea would describe themselves. It's not how anybody in the land around them would describe the church of Laodicea. Nobody would say that. Verse 18, Jesus says, I counsel you to buy from me... Gold refined by the fire, so that you may be rich, and white garments, so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes, so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him, and he with me. It's almost as if Jesus knows Laodicea has got a whole lot of excuses. So all he does is he comes and he answers them. You think you've got a whole lot of wealth, but you need to buy from me true gold refined in the true fire. You think all your expensive black wool is, is really important because of all the money you make off of it? And if you go to Turkey today, you can still buy some of this black wool. But Jesus says you need to buy clothes from me to wear to cover your shameful nakedness because you are exposing the gospel to all sorts of things that you just should not be doing. He says, so clearly, you know, white in the Bible is a reference to holiness and purity. Uh, the city that's known for the best medical care in the world with their eye balms and all of that. Not bomb like boom, but B-A-L-M, right? Remember? You know, Jesus said, you got to get the salve for me to put it on your eyes so you can really see. This is a church that was all about itself. The people were wealthy, yet poor spiritually. They sat in a city famous for all of their fine garments, but spiritually, they're naked. Their medical care is top-notch, and Jesus says, but you are blind. And if you talk to some, anybody today who understands these churches in the book of Revelation, nobody wants to be Laodicea. Nobody wants to say, oh, you're like Laodicea. But the truth is, we all are. We all at some point ending up, end up being like this church in Laodicea. They're a church. They're caught up in materialism. They make little to no difference in their communities in which they live. They refuse to live on mission. And what Jesus is doing to all of these churches is calling them to live on his mission. I keep saying this every week. His What's the mission he calls us to? Mission is the life purpose of any person who calls Jesus Lord in their life. So so what is it? Number one, glorify God. Secondly, make disciples and make disciples. How do we do that? By understanding the gospel. That Jesus, through his death and resurrection, takes away our sin, brings us to new life. He is making all things new, even us. And with our understanding of the gospel, we can go and step into each other's lives and live the gospel in each other's lives, disciple one another, and live on mission. Verse 21, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so Jesus does this thing where he talks about zeal, repent, listen to me. Again, these are very hard words. Jesus is saying the people in this church have been complacent and they are lazy because of their wealth and all the things that they have. You know, if if they are Christians, they're drifting really far away from the mission Jesus calls them to. So he says, you know, repent quickly and I will come and I will have fellowship with you. Which makes you think that at this point, Jesus doesn't really have a whole lot of fellowship with that church. He's calling them back to live the mission that they were called to. It's almost like Jesus is standing outside of his very own church, knocking on the door saying, hey, can I come inside? You say it's about me. You worship Jesus. How about Jesus comes in? You know, it's kind of like that. Now, knowing the history of Laodicea, it's clear Jesus actually does destroy this church and the city. The city is completely destroyed in the first century. Every subsequent rebuilding of this city is also destroyed by earthquakes. As I mentioned, A.D. 60, that first one takes place, it's destroyed, the people rebuild. And from A.D. 100 to A.D. 600, every 50 to 100 years, an earthquake hits this region and it wipes out this city and the churches that are in it. Finally, about the 7th century, they just decide, we're done, we're done. It's been abandoned ever since, actually until the last few years. They actually started doing some excavations, and they're talking about rebuilding the city once more. And so, I kind of think it's a kind of a bad idea. It's kind of seeming like God may not want it to be rebuilt. I'd be like, I'll put a house here. Boom! No, I'm not going to put a house here. You know, and just... <laughs> Don't reveal to I just, just walk away and leave it. And so you got Jesus. Eyes of penetrating fire. He sees everything. He's got a voice that's greater than the sound of many waters. And what does he say? He doesn't say, you're grieving me. And, and that, that would be terrible. He's not saying, you're angering me. That would be scary. What he says is, you nauseate me. You're nauseating me. I'm about to vomit you because of what I see in you. What elicits that reaction? That reaction is elicited because of this lukewarmness. And I want to kind of talk to you about that this morning, this lukewarmness. you got to remember the early church is characterized by zeal. Jesus is calling them to have zeal and repent. Listen to him. Uh, J.C. Ryle, Archbishop of Liverpool, says this. The definition of zeal in this text is to be a person of one thing. Now, I'll paraphrase kind of what he says after that for you uh, because you're not going to go find this obscure old book by this guy, I'm sure, and read it. So this is essentially what he says. A zealous Christian is one who sees only one thing, cares for only one thing, lives for only one thing, is swallowed up by only one thing, gets pleasure and joy from only one thing. A zealous Christian does not care whether he lives or dies, is healthy or sick, is rich or poor, is popular or offensive, whether he gets blame or praise, whether he gets honor or shame. None of these things really matter. He only cares about one thing, to bring joy to the heart of his Savior, To honor his Savior, to please his Savior, to bring joy to the heart of the one who gave himself for us. Beautiful words, beautiful words. What zeal means is it means wholeheartedness, wholeheartedness. Uh, If you like cars, we would say it's full throttle. If you like the movie Spinal Tap, it's your knob that goes to 11. Okay, just any, no? Spinal Tap fans? No? Okay, all right. I said that first service and one person goes, yeah. Nigel, Spinal Tap, whatever. Okay. Uh, the statement that Jesus kind of says, it's this idea of covenant cursing, meaning lu- a lukewarm Christian is probably not even a believer at all. Now today when we, we talk about zeal, we equate it with being like a fanatic. I talked about this during the Sermon on the Mount a little bit. I'll briefly kind of sum that up. Uh, a fanatic is someone who we see as counterproductive to everything because they get their stuff across in the most offensive way possible. Like a fanatic is someone who will love Justin Bieber no matter what he does or how much fun we make of him. Right? It's like, oh no, Justin Bieber, yeah, I love Justin Bieber. In Christianity, most people think fanaticism is a function of the degree of your commitment to Jesus. The more committed you are, the more zeal you have, the more of a fanatic you are, and the weirder you get. Right? That's, that's not so. Many people think the cure to fanaticism or zeal is to dial back that zeal, be a little more moderate. And not at all, that's not how it works. A fanatic is somebody who would be fanatically sold out to Jesus and the mission who wants to see Jesus' kingdom go forward just like Jesus would want to see it go forward. Tim Keller says the problem with the fanatic is they're not fanatical enough, which means they're not fanatically sensitive like Jesus. They're not fanatically loving like Jesus. They're not fanatically self-sacrificing like Jesus. They're not fanatically humble. They are never humble. Never humble. And I'm a fan- Crazy. They're not fanatically wise. And if you see a person that you consider to be a fanatic and they're offensive and rude, it's not a function of being too zealous for Jesus. It's a function of not being zealous enough. If you're around somebody whose life is sold out to the mission of the gospel, they make people feel welcomed and loved and cared about. They are like Jesus. I mean, think about this. The prostitutes like Jesus. And not because he paid them, right? The prostitutes like Jesus. The little children, they liked Jesus. The zeal of early Christians was a secret of why the mission succeeded. It wasn't just an option, that was Christianity. And when Jesus says, When I don't see it in you, it begins to turn my stomach. And those are really strong words. Kenneth Scott Laterette, who's professor of history at Yale, He wrote a seven-volume series called A History of of the European Expansion of Christianity. I'm going to quote very liberally from that this morning because I need you to hear some things that I think he says which are very important. And this is what he says. He asks this, What accounts for the fact that an obscure Jewish sect, that's Christianity, with no influential backing in high places, not only forced the most powerful state in the history of the world to come to terms with it, but even was able to outlive and survive the complete destruction of the very civilization and government that sought to destroy? Destroy it. So that's the question. Why did Christianity grow? Over the years, historians have actually wrestled with that question. Why? Because there are literally hundreds of philosophies and religions in the Roman world. Why did Christianity take over? Why? He gives four main reasons. Number one, he says, Roman civilization was crumbling because of a loss of absolute truth, and Christianity provided the absolute truth. What you had happened in Rome, like, and it happened in a lot of cities since then, but Rome is really the first place they can trace this to. So you had this universal state with all kinds of people under one. Government. They all had to get along, and so when they started sticking people in these cities, it's like, no, no, you can't have truth, and I can't have, nobody really gets to have truth, we all got to worship the emperor, and then worship all these gods, and everything's okay, because we're all just going to kind of do the same thing, and if you were raised, and you had this idea of what is right and wrong sexually, and right or wrong monetarily, and right and, right and wrong ethically, and you stepped into that, you began to be called intolerant. You'd go to the university. Everything and you had to change in how you saw the entire world. You had to be part of this. And what started to happen is people actually became more and more barbaric with one another. Because, oh, you don't just think everything's okay? Well, what's wrong with you? You're not tolerant of, of my tolerance? Well, I'm going to be intolerant of you. And people actually started to be killed because they weren't tolerant. The tolerant people were killing the people they didn't think were tolerant, which really makes no sense, right? Because like, they're not being very tolerant. Sounds like the world today, right? Kind of crazy, kind of crazy. And so, of all this barbarities that were happening, their, their society started to crumble, and people started to ask, "How are people going to live decent lives again? What What do we look to? What's true?" Christianity comes in. The historians say and said, "This is the truth." And people were so starved for truth that everybody flocked to it. Why? Because not because they're out holding signs and protesting, but because the church always stayed steadfast to their mission. They loved people. They love people. They talked about Jesus. They had him as the center. And no matter what happened around them, they stayed true to who Jesus called them to be. Steadfast to the mission. Secondly, he says, Christianity was inclusive. It was inclusive. it talks about how most philosophies in Rome are for the educated And if you were poor, you couldn't understand those educated things. And yet Christianity comes in, and it's simple enough for the poor, and yet answers the philosophical questions of the educated people, of these intellectuals. It included educated and uneducated people in it. Most religions at this time, they're completely oriented towards males. And sometimes people want to argue with that. Oh, no, no, because in Rome, they had like the worship of the divine feminine. Okay, any temple you can go to as a dude and have sex with the priestess, that's made for a dude. Okay, It's not like, oh yeah, let's worship the Divine Feminine. I can have sex with you? Sweet, done. right? That's made for a dude. Okay, Christianity, on the other hand, had male and female both in positions of ministry and importance. Uh, Pliny, who was the governor of Bithynia in AD 98, when the last apostle hadn't even died yet, wrote a letter to the Emperor Trajan, and this is what he writes. I'm trying to find out more about the Christians, and I just tortured two maid servants who are deaconesses in their local church to find out more about their beliefs. Deaconesses in their local church. Most other religions, they would ignore women like that. Here, women are in ministry positions. It was for men and women, poor and rich, Jew and Greek, slave and free, educated, uneducated. Christianity is so inclusive that the mission prevailed. latter day uses the word one. I like the idea that the mission prevails. There has never been a religion that brought slaves and rulers together like this. Imagine if you're a guy and and you own slaves in this society, and you walk into this church and you become a follower of Jesus. Your slave might be in spiritual leadership over you. You have to be humble enough to actually accept that and live in that. It was an amazing thing that happened in the church. It brings male and female and all these people together. The third thing he says is Christianity uh, was flexible and yet it was immovable. He actually uses the word uh intransient, but but I don't I didn't want to like confuse you. I'm not saying you're dumb, right? I'm just giving you a word that you kind of connect to, okay? Immovable, immovable. Uh this is the idea, Christians would never ever worship the emperor. Pliny, in that same letter to Trajan, he writes this. I received an unsigned paper presenting names of many people alleged to be Christians, but they all denied it. I brought them into my presence, and I had to let them go, because at my command they prayed to the gods. They made supplication with incense and wine to your statue, Emperor Trajan, and they cursed Christ. None of these things, it is said, those who are really Christians can ever, ever be made to do. Interesting words. Kind of makes me look at my own heart in that, you know. There was an immovability and intransience to these Christians. Christianity taught that Jesus was the creator who became a man who died for our sin, all that separated us from God and us from each other. Jesus dies, takes it away, he rises from the grave, brings us to new life. He is the unique image of God and they would not compromise that. This preeminence of Christ, they just, they wouldn't. On the other hand, Christianity is extremely flexible. Like if you wanted to be a Jew, you had to start to dress Jewish, you had to eat Jewish, you had to take all the Jewish customs. Judaism did not spread very fast. Christianity didn't do that. Christianity is totally flexible on these sorts of things like, you know, dress how you want, uh, eat what you want, uh, listen to the music, music you want to. But on the essentials of who Jesus is, it was completely inflexible. They stood by who Jesus was. They had incredible balance. And the fourth thing later it says is Christianity succeeded. I, he says one, okay, uh, because the Christians produced the most changed lives. This is what he writes. The more one examines into the various factors which seem to account for the extraordinary victory of Christianity, the more one is driven to search for a cause that underlies them. It is clear that at the very beginning of Christianity, there must have occurred a vast release of energy. We would call this God's spirit. Unequaled in the history of the race. Without it, the future course of the faith is inexplicable. Something happened to the men who associated with Jesus. And so what was that? He says, the burst of energy was ascribed by the early disciples to the founder of their faith, to meeting Jesus, to living and knowing him in their lives. He says, and I love this, why this occurred may lie outside the realms in which historians are supposed to move. I love that line. I love that line. He says there's a reason, there's a reason there. There's no way to explain all the all the changes in these people, the, the moral changes, the power of the Christians, the, the courage of them, the ability after persecution, after persecution, after persecution to stand for Jesus. You know, it's God's spirit to continue living the mission that he calls us to, to call us to be the church. Later it says that every persecuted group that they've ever looked at throughout history that's been hounded and exterminated like Christians because it was illegal to be a Christian under the Trajan, went into guerrilla warfare and became embittered. They became embittered and spent all their lives in vengeance. If you look at the IRA in Northern Ireland, this this has been their lives. If you look at the Middle East, a lot of the Middle East today is, is like that. You guys heard about this this crazy thing about the like the Miss Universe contest that's kind of going on? And you got like Israel and Miss Lebanon and you know Lebanon have you guys heard of this? So Miss Lebanon will not take a picture with like Miss Israel, right? Because you know it's like, oh those Jews and, and so and so what happens is Miss Israel sees Miss Lebanon with a group of girls one day, walks up and goes, boom, selfie, and posts it. Right? This is Miss Israel on the left. That's Miss Lebanon right behind her. Right? You know what happens because of this picture? Firestorm takes place. I mean, Lebanon is like, execute the woman, you know, and get rid of her. And, and she is like, I'm so sorry. I wasn't, I didn't mean for this to happen. It was a sister just jumped in and took this picture. It was horrible. I, I can't stand her. Please forgive me, Mike. I mean, seriously. Seriously. It's just crazy, crazy stuff. You see this everywhere today. In the Christian writings of the early church period in which they're being exterminated, there is little to nothing of the bitterness and a call for revenge for those people who are systematically killing their friends and their families. All that they really said was how great an honor it was to die for the one who died for them. It's amazing. And this is what they write. They said, we'll pray as our Savior prayed that God will forgive you because you really don't know what you're doing. Cladorette says this, I'm a historian. I can't say it was the resurrection. I can't say it was a miracle. That's not my job. All I can tell you is that there was an unparalleled in the history of our race explosion of energy in the beginning. That's the only way to account for the fact that these early Christians had this kind of power. Now, I know that's, that's a really long little history lesson right there, but that's what zeal is. That's what zeal is. Anybody who actually came to grips with the message of the gospel, of Christianity, of who Jesus is, who actually met the risen Lord Jesus like we have the opportunity to do today, became fully possessed of a fleshed-out zeal. Not a wild-eyed, crazy, freaky imbalance. There are people that wanted to be like Jesus. They, They wanted to see the things that Jesus wanted to see done, see that take place. And Jesus has this thing that says, you know, anything less than that is not zeal. And it begins to nauseate me. So here is my hard-lent question number one for you today, okay? What does Jesus think of you? I'll tell you. Jesus loves you, okay? That's what he thinks about you. He loves you. But I'm, I'm talking more in this lukewarm sense. If you had to really take a hard look at it, what does that look like in you? What, what does that look like? Do you see zeal in your life? Again, everything Jesus says is to build up his church and return it to mission. Okay, return the church to mission. That's what he's calling them to. That's why he talks like this. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. I think there are literally three kinds of people in this world today. And I, and I know in this passage hot and cold are both good, but in, in our culture they have kind of different meanings. So uh, I, I think, number one, that there are people who are thoroughly committed to Jesus Christ. I think there are people who love him and honor him and serve him. And, I mean, we, we all kind of take those dips every once in a while, but, you know, they're, they're committed. Secondly, there are people who, are, who reject Jesus and are hostile to the message of Jesus. And thirdly, there are people who are just sort of religious. Oh, I'm a child of God, or I'm this. Or maybe they even call themselves Christians. Maybe they even go to church, but there's nothing remarkable about these lives. Now, if I asked you, where does the majority of America stand? Because you put out a poll, and you say to people in America, are you a Christian? 70% will say, I'm a Christian. So where do you think the majority of Americans sit? One, two, or three? We would say, we would say three, right? I mean, look at, just look at the person next to you. Size them up. Give them a number. Say, hey, you're a one, two. No, I'm kidding. Don't. You're totally rude. I can't believe you guys are going oh, okay. Well, you're a three. I know that. What you have to understand is it cannot always be the other guy who's the number three. It can't always be the other guy who's number three. We got to take responsibility for we're the number three as well. Tim Keller says this, people who love Jesus and hate Jesus have both come to grips with the claims of Christ. They both come to grips with it. Like a hostile person to Jesus will say, I know what Christianity claims. It claims that Jesus became a man, died on the cross for what separated me from God and me from other people. And if that's true, it's got to change everything. They know that if Jesus is real, there's nothing to do but follow him and serve him. And if he's not real, nothing means anything whatsoever anyway. The oceans of time before you're born, the oceans of time after you die, you're here. This life really means nothing whatsoever. Nothing. Nothing. But if Jesus is who he said he is, then we have to sell everything out. Romans 12.1 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Which means we are people who have to look at our way we spend our money and say we have got to put Jesus first. We've got to look at the way that we use our sexuality and say I got to put Jesus first. We look at the way we spend our time. We got to put Jesus first. Look at the way our, our prayer time and go. I got to get one of those prayer times. Oh well, I got a Bible. I better clean that thing off and open it up. These, those, thuses. Grab one out of the back of the room and take it home with you. Read one of those. They're all pre-dusted off. See, you save a couple pounds on dust. Take it home. You know. You've got to look at the way and the people you associate with or you refuse to associate with. And you have to put Jesus first. It's the only reasonable way to respond. Living our lives is a spiritual act of worship. I mean, how do you come to grips with someone who has given himself for you without giving yourself back to them? There is no moderate way to respond. There is no lukewarm way to respond. See, if somebody understands Christianity and and says, says, I have nothing to do with it and they totally reject it, I get that, okay? You know, but they've come to the, to the place of the claims that. There's also people who have centered their lives on Jesus. They have also come to grips with the claims of who Jesus is. You're not your own. You're bought at a price. He died for you. It's one or the other. I think that only the person who hasn't come to grips with the gospel, who doesn't really understand what the gospel of Jesus Christ teaches, is the person in the middle the one who thinks that they have it all together, they have all the answers, they think to get, they get to decide for God what is right or wrong and for them in their life, the people who are self-sufficient, that's the church of Laodicea. And I would say more often than not, that says as well. And so my second Lent questions for you today is this. Do you say you're a Christian? Maybe do you even, do you even pray your prayers, but your life is all about you and what God can give to you because he's already given you everything. And not necessarily about how we in our lives can be hot, you know, fully for, passionate for his name, or cold like a glass of water on a, on a Sunday third service that would just be so nice right now. You know? Or are you the person that just sits in the middle? I mean, do you say you believe in Jesus' teaching, but you really don't really want to go overboard? I mean, do you understand what Jesus has done for you? And if you say yes, do you understand the gospel? Well, can you explain that? Can you explain what the gospel is? We've been doing this now for, you know, for the last seven weeks so far, and every week I keep explaining to you what the gospel is so you can have a definition and understanding of it. I mean, the gospel is that Jesus has sought us and bought his children. He has chased us down. He has loved us. He has died the death we should have died. He lived the life that we should have lived. He has given us his righteousness. All that separates us from God and each other is now gone in the person of Christ. He is making all things new, even us. This is the understanding of the gospel. Can you explain that? Are you a one, a two, or a three? And what are the places that you fall into being a number three? But here's the beauty, okay? Here's the beauty. There is hope, because there's always hope. Verse 19, Jesus says, Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Because if he did not love us, if he didn't love us, he wouldn't call us on this. He wouldn't point these things out. I know that I can be just like the church in Laodicea. I, so often in my life, am self-sufficient. I know what I want and what I think, and I think I'm always right. I mean, try living with this, right? I'm my poor wife, right? I always think I'm right about everything. And I mean, I, I'm, I'm Laodicea. I am Laodicea. But I also know that my heart wouldn't be convicted unless he was rebuking me, which reminds me that he also loves me because he calls me on my stuff. Again, Jesus wants us hot and passionate. He wants us cold like a refreshing glass of water on a hot day. He just doesn't want us lukewarm in the metal. And the the message to the church today is clear. It matters how we live. We're saved by grace, but it matters how we live. It matters to the mission of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are a people who have been given much, much. Our responsibility is how are we going to live that out? Again, work and deeds, they sound like such swear words in the church today. I, I heard somebody say, oh, work and deeds You've you got to understand, it's, that's kind of a sad thing. It's kind of a sad thing. Because, you know, we've been content to come and think that church is a building. And that when we come and, and, and we go to church, we listen to somebody like me hammer on at you for about 40 minutes, you know, about things out of the Bible, and you feel like I've done my job, and, and I'm done. And, and you go and you leave. That's really sad when speeches that we call sermons or Bible studies at some some places become the, the fullness of a Christian life. Do you know what living on mission means? Jesus calls us to be people who serve others, who live with him on mission. And so many believers have lost that, have lost that. And my question really for you, my last question is, have you lost that? Have you lost it? And just kind of settled into a mediocrity of lukewarmness. That the consistency of a Christian life for you is trying not to do the bad thing, try to do the good thing. And I'll go to church once a week and listen to somebody like Aaron yell at me for 40 minutes. I mean, is that, is that all that it is? That's not all that it is. And Jesus throughout you know, these seven churches of Revelation has been trying to call us to wake up. To wake up because we are people that, that must be roused again. We must understand what Jesus is doing, what He wants to do in our lives as we surrender everything to Him to understanding the fullness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now this is one of the reasons we talk about communion every single week. You know, communion is the place where you go when you break that cracker like Christ's body is broken for us, you dip it in the wine of the grapes, you reminds us of His blood that was shed for you and me. This is this is the place that reminds us that we lay down our self-sufficiency. We lay down our lukewarmness. And we begin to live the mission that He calls us to live. It's a reminder of what He has done. And we don't pass it out to you. It's a response. You actually have to get up and go take communion. Because it's a response. Just like how we live our lives in response to what Jesus has first done of how He's loved us and saved us and given to us and shown His grace and blessed us. How we live our lives are a response to what he has first done. And so deeds aren't a bad word. They're not. Our lives should live out showing the great hope and joy that he has given to us. It starts with him and is lived out as we understand the gospel. The band's gonna come up. As to do when you invite you to take communion, there'll be some deacons and elders in the back, and if you need prayer, I mean maybe you're stuck in a place of lukewarmness. Uh, and, and maybe you don't know how to get out of that, and you'd like to talk to somebody about that, they would love to talk to you about that. They'd love to begin to walk through you know, some of those hard questions. If you need prayer for anything, they'd love to, to pray with you about that. And there's offering boxes on the sidewall in the back, and we give because God gave so much to us, giving is simply part of our worship. Again, we don't pass a plate. It's a response to what he's done. Uh, there's food and stuff in the back, and we invite you to grab something to eat and meet some other people. Because God uses other people in our lives to call us on this lukewarmness. It's like, you need to have a friend in your life that you can say, if you had to give me a temperature, you know, where I am with Jesus, what would it be? And, and I'll tell you, don't ask your spouse. Okay? So if you didn't take the trash out today, well, you're totally lukewarm and you're horrible, right? It's true. Ask, ask a friend. You know, someone who sees you, sees how you live at home and sees how you live at work and sees how you live in your life and other places and, and ask them to really be honest about it. You know, where, where am I? Give, give me my gauge. Am, am I, you know, am, am I like a passionate, you know, like extra heart, hot Starbucks coffee? Am I like a popsicle, an element on a hot Sunday morning? Or am I like Santa Maria tap water that nobody really wants to drink and they just go, when they think about it? You know, wh- what am I like? And be honest. And be honest about it. Because we come along eat side of each other, and we help one another to grow, and so we need to allow people in our lives who are going to ask those hard questions. Part of the reason why we put food and stuff back there is so you guys connect and so you guys can actually have other people in your life and get a little closer to and, and do that if you 're not in the gospel community, we would encourage you to do so. You can sign up in the back someone will call you they 'll invite you. Uh, hope we get you connected a little bit better our, our God is good; He calls us to mission everything he says in the scriptures, is to return us to mission. And so we, as a people, live that mission of the goodness and the grace of Jesus Christ in all things that we do. And I hope that through these churches of revelation, you have been called to a place of returning to mission, of honoring him in your life, in all things. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would teach us as a people to understand what it means to be a people of mission. To glorify you in all things. To disciple one another into knowing you better. That our understanding of your grace and your gospel would change all that we are and all that we do. I ask that you would empty us of the things that we are constantly placing in front of you in our lives. And that we and be a people who worship You as You have revealed Yourself to be. That You would fill us with Your Spirit, that You would fill us with understanding of Your grace, that You would fill us with the remembrance of Your hope so that You are glorified by Your children's lives. And Father, we know that we are saved by grace. It is not by our works and not by the things that we do. But I ask that you would give us a conviction deep in our bones that we would live lives that honor you, that worship you, that bless you. I ask that when we feel your rebuke in in our heart and that conviction that you bring that we wouldn't run from it but we would understand that it is you loving us. You refusing to leave us the same way that you found us. You growing us and changing us and redeeming us. Fill is with you so we would see the world the way you do. And we bring great glory to you. We ask this in your son's good name. Amen.